0: Well, good morning. Glad that you're here to worship with us this morning and to begin this uh, new series in the book of 1 Peter. Um, Like the book of Esther... I think 1 Peter is a very timely book, and so over the next several weeks as we uh, engage in it, I pray that God will open up all of our eyes to see and to hear what he would have us see and hear as we look at this marvelous little book. So let's pray together before we begin. Father, thank you for our time here this morning. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us and for your mercy Lord, we thank you most of all for your son, the Lord Jesus. And we thank you for your word and the Holy Spirit that you have given to live within us that we might understand your word, that we might know how to please you, how to live for you in this world. And Lord, thank you for all the marvelous promises that you have given to us. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would be our teacher, not only here this morning, but every week, every time we open up your word. Lord, show us things that we do not understand. Cause us to marvel at your beauty and your wonder and your miraculous provisions for us in Christ. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The 18th century philosopher Immanuel Kant said that mankind has been asking three questions really from the very beginning. And those three questions have changed form over the years, but in essence, he says, we are asking, What can I know as we go through life? Another question he says we ask is, What shall I do? And the third question is, for what may I hope? Now, these questions have been asked for millennia, and they've come in different forms, different fashions. That last question for what may I hope might be restated today. Is there any hope? There are a lot of people, perhaps Some of you who this morning are asking that very same question, is there any hope? You see, the man or the woman who is addicted to drugs or alcohol or pornography is asking the question, is there any hope of being set free from my addiction? The couple on the brink of divorce is asking, is there any hope for our marriage? The man with terminal cancer or parents who have lost a child also want to know, is there any hope? Is there any hope for those who have been used and abused? And what about those who are alone, lonely, or depressed? What about the poor and the hungry and the oppressed? Is there any hope for them? Is there any hope for the millions of Christians throughout the world that this year will be persecuted for their faith? And is there any hope for the billions of people who are headed to a Christless eternity? The Apostle Peter gives us an answer to this question in his first epistle, his first letter. And the answer is unequivocally, yes, there is hope. And it is found only in Christ. You see, suffering and pain have been around as long as the human race. And in addition to the suffering that is common to all people, Christians have a very special form of suffering. They have had to endure much in the way of persecution. Now, during the middle decades of the first century, it wasn't easy to live as a Christian. There were great difficulties Some faced direct persecution. Many were ostracized from their communities. They were mocked. They were abused by those who were in authority, even by family members. It was difficult to be unequally yoked with a spouse who was an unbeliever. Living out the Christian life in the home was extremely difficult. Some, like Stephen, faced physical persecution but that was minor compared to what was about to come the real persecution of Christians had not yet begun I want to give you a little timeline of our study here in the book of First Peter and there we go Peter sensed the coming darkness, thus the reason for writing 1 Peter. It prompted him to write to encourage his readers, and he did so around AD 62 to 63, and most likely he wrote this from Rome, uh, just prior to the Neronian persecutions. And he wrote to encourage his fellow Christians and to remind them of the hope that they have in Christ. Now, if you were here with us a few weeks ago, we talked a little bit about this, but Nero set uh, the city of Rome on fire, and he blamed the Christians for it. And he did this uh, in July of AD 64. And by October, there was a a full-fledged persecution of Christians going on, and it was most severe in the city of Rome, but it was felt all over the Roman Empire. And what Nero began, other emperors continued. Vespasian, who followed him immediately, had a particular hatred for the Jews, and he considered Christians to be among them. And before he became emperor, he had a stated goal to eradicate all the Jews and to wipe Judea off of the face of the map. After becoming emperor, he sent his son Titus, to Palestine, to Judea, to basically end that civilization. Jerusalem was sacked. The temple was destroyed. A number of years ago, my wife and I had the opportunity to go to Rome. And while we were touring the city of Rome, we came across this, known as the Arch of Titus. It was erected as a tribute to Titus and his conquering campaign in Judea. And you can't see it very well from here. I took another picture here where maybe you can see it. You'll notice that there's a bunch of people that are carrying treasures from the temple back to Rome. These were Jewish slaves. And you can see the menorah there at the top that they were carrying back, symbolic of all the, the riches and the gold and all the precious things that were present in the temple that now belonged to Caesar. This, this was the beginning of severe persecution of Christians. Christians. After this, shockwaves were felt throughout the entire Roman Empire. Christians everywhere suffered. They were forbidden to worship. They were scattered across the Roman Empire by persecution. Many were imprisoned. Others were enslaved. And still others were put to death, executed, simply, for following Jesus. The world is still a dangerous place. Living here in America, I don't think we fully understand how dangerous it is to be a Christian in the world today. Just this past week, I read about a 37-year-old Pakistani Christian uh, who was also a father of four who was sentenced to death because he refused... Um, to recant his faith and to convert to Islam. That's not an isolated incident. Christians are being persecuted for their faith and it is estimated that this year alone there will be over 350 million Christians who will face persecution. I mean, does that number jog you at all? I mean, that, that's about, I haven't read the recent stat, but I think that's about the population of the United States. 350 million Christians are facing persecution. Of that number, over 160,000 of them will die martyrs' deaths. Now, praise God, that number's come down over the last decade. Had been well over 300,000. But that is what's happening in the world around us. And to put it into further context, between AD 33 and 1900, there were 14 million documented martyrs. Historians have been able to document that there were 1,400 martyrs during those 19th centuries. But in the 20th century alone, there were over 26 million documented deaths due to persecution. We have not faced that kind of persecution here in America. But we have begun to see a growing intolerance for Christians and the church. Businesses are being pressured to abandon biblical convictions because their values are viewed as discriminatory. Our PC culture wants to silence the church and individual Christians because God's word is an affront to their agenda. Whether it be abortion, gender identity, sexual orientation, same-sex marriage, or even social justice. It will become increasingly more difficult as time goes by to live the Christian life here in the United States. And because of this, because of this, we must cling to the dual realities that we have a living hope and that we can find great joy even in the midst of suffering. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're just going to cover 12 verses this morning. and We're going to do it a little bit at a time. We're going to start here in verse 1. Peter, in an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Mithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This letter was addressed to the exiles of the dispersion. And you can see on the map there what is uh, known as Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, all those areas of Asia, Bithynia, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Pontus. Here, what it means by exiles and dispersion simply means that, that these were Christians who were scattered by persecution. And Peter wrote to these believers to encourage them to persevere. For in their suffering, they were actually following in the footsteps of Jesus. Who came and suffered for them. And died and rose again for their salvation. Now verse 2 is a theological gold goldmine. Um, I wish that I could actually spend time um, uh, on this. I, I could probably preach a whole sermon on verse two. Um, I don't have the time to do that, but let me just point out to you something that I found uh, very interesting is in this one verse, you see the Holy Trinity at work. You read, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. See, all three members of the Godhead working together to secure our salvation and bring us to glory. And Peter says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, this isn't just a a simple salutation. It's just not a, a trivial greeting. He, he is saying to them, may God's grace, that which saved you and keeps you and sustains you and transforms you, may it be multiplied in your life. And may the peace of God also be multiplied in your life. Verse 3, blessed be the God And Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I just love how after the introduction, Peter just launches into praise. I mean, you just have to understand his heart as he penned these words Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He reveals to his readers something that maybe we take for granted because we've heard it time and time and time again. But if you imagine yourself as either a non-Christian or a new Christian, someone who has not had the privilege of having this God's Word codified, written down with Sunday school classes and Bible studies and everything in which to learn, listen to what he says Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is the Father of Jesus. Jesus is God's Son. This is a central tenet of Christianity that Jesus is not just a a good human teacher. He is not just a prophet. He's not an angel sent from God. He is God in the flesh. Verse three continues there. He says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now, hope is a big word right now in our culture. Many people are are hoping Uh, we'll get back to normal, uh, whatever that is. People are hoping that the infection and mortality rates of COVID-19 will decline, that people can get back to work, that their kids would go back to school. OSU fans are hoping that the Big Ten will play football. For many, though, hope is merely wishful thinking. But the hope that is spoken of in our passage and in this book is so much bigger than football or the economy. It is about possessing certainty of our salvation. I like what John Piper said about hope. He said, biblical hope, underscore the word biblical, biblical hope is Full assurance, not uncertain desire. You see, our hope is not uncertain desire. It's not wishful thinking. But it is a sure reality that one day God will fulfill all of his promises. That we will receive all that God has promised us. Peter describes this as a living hope. It is a living hope because Jesus rose from the dead and is alive forevermore. And because we have a living hope, we can have the courage to live boldly in this life. Warren Wearsby said this of hope. He said, hope is not a sedative. It is a shot of adrenaline, a blood transfusion. Like an anchor, our hope in Christ stabilizes us in the storms of life. But unlike an anchor, our hope moves us forward. It does not hold us back. So where does our hope come from? Well, if you look at the text, you can clearly see that it comes from God the Father. It is according to the Father's great mercy that we are in Christ. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now, I remember when I first encountered the term born again. Um, some of you may have heard me share this, but I remember I had a good friend of mine who, who, who asked me if I was a Christian. I said, of course I'm a Christian. I go to church. He said, well, that don't count. That, do, that doesn't make you a Christian, going to church. like that. You have to be born again. And, and I remember when I heard that term, I thought, I really thought this, that the only people who needed to be born again were those Christians who couldn't hack it the first time around. They couldn't cut it, they couldn't live the Christian life the first time, so they had to be born again. I mean, that was my extent of understanding of what it meant to be born again. What I didn't realize is that nobody is a Christian simply because they're born in America. Or they go to church. Just as I became a member of the Detoma family, not because I wanted to be, I hadn't even existed yet. But rather, in my case, I was adopted, I was chosen, I was brought into the Detoma household. And I bear my father's last name. In a similar way, nobody chooses. I, you know, I think I'm going to be a Christian. I think I'm going to be a part of God's family today. No, you have to be chosen. You have to be adopted. And praise God, God did for us what we could never do. He sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to take our sins away so that he could receive us into his family. In fact, in the book of John, we read that as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Not to those who were born of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but the will of God. And so, To be born again simply means that God does a work in us where he regenerates our heart. He gives us a new nature. He places his spirit within us. And we are born anew. Paul tells us that we're new creatures. That we're a new creation in Christ. That is what it means to be born again. The Father rescued us by sending His one and only Son to pay the penalty for our sins by dying on the cross and by rising from the dead. Hope is a major theme of 1 Peter, as is grace. You're going to see those terms used repeatedly in this book. Grace is mentioned in every chapter. And Peter is testifying to the sufficiency of God's grace in all things. He wants his readers, and that includes us, he wants us to trust God. He wants us to honor God by living our lives in such a way that is pleasing to him, even in the midst of suffering and persecution. And he is challenging us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and the hope of our inheritance why because we live in a fallen world we live in a world that is enemy occupied territory all of us every single christian who desires to live godly in christ jesus the scripture says will be persecuted Perhaps one of the reasons why we don't face persecution like other Christians do in other parts of the world here in America is maybe we're not living in such a way as to warrant it. Do, do, do the people in the cubicle next to you even know that you're a Christian? Suffering should be expected in this life, but remember this it's temporary. What is 60, 70, 80 years in this life compared to all eternity? Hardships are bound to come. But praise God, they don't have the last word. They don't. Now I want you to notice that not only do we have a living hope, we have a lasting hope. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, we have received an inheritance that is, one, imperishable. That is, it is eternal. Nothing can destroy it. It is undefiled, meaning that it is pure. It cannot be marred or cheapened in any way. It is unfading. It never loses its power or beauty. It never wears out. And it is kept in heaven. Meaning, it is secure. Where do people keep their valuables? In a safe, in a safe deposit box, their money in a bank. Some people hide it somewhere in their house. I know that whenever we get ready to take a trip, sometimes my my wife will take the things that are most valuable to her and she will find a hiding place for them. Well, guess what? Our inheritance is kept in heaven. And ain't nobody getting in there to take it away. It is secure. But we rest... Oh, in, in verse five, I mean, look at this. Not, not only is he the source of our living, lasting hope, it, it's going to be revealed in the last time. Look at, look at verse five, it says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So he is the source of our hope, but he's also the guardian of our hope. You got God standing guard over our inheritance. So we rest not only in his love, but in his power. We are guarded by the power of God through faith so that one day we will receive our inheritance and enjoy the salvation God has wrought for us in Christ. But until that day, we need to resign ourselves to understand that there will be suffering. There will be pain. There will be testings and trials and tribulations, but God is at work using all of these things to conform us to the image of His Son. Verse 6 In this you rejoice. Go now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This just amazes me when I read this, these two verses. Despite their suffering, despite the persecution that they faced, these Christians had a deep joy. Notice the words, if necessary, in the ESV. It conveys the idea that suffering has a purpose. There is a redemptive quality to it. Trials test our faith. They prove the genuineness of it. The New International Version, um, the NIV 84, I, I like the way it phrases this, and I just thought it might bring some clarity, but it says, these, meaning the trials and testings, have come so that your faith may be proved genuine. The New Living Translation says, these trials will show that your faith is genuine. You see, when we are tried and tested, our faith gets stretched. It doesn't get stretched by never facing difficulty in life. And I, I know something about stretching. Stretching is not fun. Um, it is unpleasant at best. It is painful at worst. Um, I, uh, I know this not just because I was an athlete, but I was uh, also in martial arts for a long time, and you want to talk about stretching routines that are, are somewhat painful. I, I'll never forget one of the, the worst ones, um, but, but it was all for a purpose, is you would sit down, you would have your legs, you know, you're, you're sitting down, your legs are kind of like this, and then is sitting up, across from you the same way. Only they put their feet on the inside of your legs, and then they reach out and they take your hands, and then they push out with their legs, kind of separating yours as far as they will go, and then they pull you down. And you can feel the burn. And I remember how excruciating it was. And the thing is, is that there's a reason for that. And for me, especially for me, because I'm so short, Um, If I wanted to get a kick up where somebody's head is, I had to be very limber. So stretching had a purpose. It was to give me a fuller range of motion. It was to keep me free from injury. And really, you don't have to talk to a martial artist about this. You can talk to any runner. How important stretching is to prevent injuries Maybe another illustration might help you understand here uh, this testing process. Let's say you're a weightlifter. You want to get stronger. You don't get stronger by lifting the same amount of weight over and over and over again. You get stronger by adding weight to the bar. And as you lift it, your muscles break down and they grow bigger. That's how you get stronger. And so... Trials and testings, suffering, persecution, God uses these things to grow our faith. I love what Malcolm Muggeridge said late in his life. He said, contrary to what might be expected, I look back on experiences that at the time seemed especially dislocating and painful with particular satisfaction Indeed, everything I have learned, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence, has been through affliction and not through happiness. How true is that? Notice also how Peter likens our faith to gold and our trials to fire. You know how gold is refined? It's refined through fire. Gold is a precious metal. But to refine it, it needs to be heated up. It needs to be melted down. And the hotter the heat, the impurities that exist in the gold then come to the surface where they then can be ladled out. That refining process requires a great deal of, fi- of fire and heat To make that gold even more valuable than it was. And for us, our faith is more precious than gold. And it too is being refined and will one day result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus returns to take us home. Pain and suffering, trials tribulations are God's means of making us more like Jesus. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You know, these believers had never seen Jesus. Yet they believed in him. They loved him. And they rejoiced with a joy that was inexpressible. There were no words that could convey the joy that they had in their hearts. I wonder does that characterize our lives? with people when they look at us do they see that kind of joy when we gather together on sunday mornings to worship the lord together is our joy inexpressible i know we're singing words we're trying to express it but what it really is getting at is what is in our hearts are we overwhelmed with the love and the mercy, and the grace, and the forgiveness, and the kindness, and the goodness of our God so that it just makes us speechless. You know, it's an oxymoron to speak of a joyless Christian. Those who love the Son and believe in Him will rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Peter declares that salvation is the result or the outcome of our faith. It is not the result or outcome of our good works. It is not a result of religious rituals. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now the prophet's, of the Old Testament wrote about this grace. They they inquired and looked into the salvation that was one day going to be revealed, but they did not understand how and when it was to be revealed. These prophets prophesied that the future sufferings of the Messiah and his glory. They prophesied of both of those things, but they couldn't understand how they fit together. Look with me at verse 10. in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things in which the angels long to look. You see, what they didn't understand was that between the sufferings of Christ and His glories... There was a new people being formed called the church. Christians, people who follow Christ. The spirit of Jesus led them to speak of the grace of God that was to be revealed and in so doing, they were really ministering to us because they had no clue about it. They didn't understand it. We have the the privilege of hindsight and much more than that. But it remained a mystery right up until God poured out his grace on us in Christ. The Apostle Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 3, uh, verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. See, only now were the angels getting a clue. The mystery of Christ in the church was not revealed in the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophets and the angels didn't understand. That's why Paul could say also in Colossians chapter 1, Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifest to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of his glory, of this mystery among the Gentiles. Here it is. Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now folks, if the Old Testament prophets and the angels longed to look into these things, if the prophets carefully searched the scriptures, digging in, trying to understand the grace of God and the salvation that is ours, how much more should we? And we have advantages that they never had we have experienced the very grace that they spoke about. We have the same Holy Spirit who revealed these truths to them living in us. And we have the complete revelation of God, Old Testament, New Testament. We are the people of God. We should plumb the depths of God's word. We should marvel at it far more than the prophets did, far more than the angels did, for we are recipients of God's grace. We have been saved from our sin and given an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and kept in heaven for us. For some of you here this morning, this living hope may still be a mystery. You come to worship services like this, you sing songs, you hear messages like this, but you have not been born again. This morning, I would urge you to bend your knee to King Jesus. And admit to him what he already knows, that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And that today you are willing to turn from your sin and to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, as your living hope. For those of you who are watching from home, the same is true for you. Right now, you can go before the Lord, confess your sins to him, and... Receive the grace of God. Allow the Father to sprinkle the blood of his Son upon you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. I'd like to close by endeavoring to answer those three questions that Immanuel Kant posed at the start of the message this morning. What can I know? I can know God. And I can know his holy word. I can know without a doubt that I have a living hope and an inheritance waiting for me in heaven. What shall I do? I can repent of my sin and believe in the Lord Jesus and believe in the gospel. I can rejoice in the Father's great love and in his salvation. I can rejoice that I know Christ and that my future is secure in him. I can be, in the words of Paul, joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. And for what may I hope to one day see this mortal body put on immortality and step into heaven where i will see my savior face to face and enjoy him forever let's pray together father we thank you for your holy word we thank you for jesus our living hope lord we thank you for your mercy for your grace, and for all that you have done for us that we might know you better, that we might love you more, that we might serve you. Father God, we thank you for the inheritance that is ours in Christ that is kept in heaven for us. Father, I pray that the eyes of our heart might be enlightened in order that we may know what is the hope to which you have called us, and the riches of your glorious inheritance. Grant us grace and peace. Keep us from the evil one, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.